Thanks so much for being here this morning. I want to add my welcome to Matt's just to thank those of you who are with us as guests today. We are delighted that you are here. My name is Aaron Campbell. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeeming Grace Church. And again, to all our guests, we invite you to guest reception right after this morning's meeting. We would love to meet you, get to know you a little bit better, and answer any questions that you have. I want to mention before we get started that we are going to celebrate communion during this morning's message near the end. Uh, not the very end, but near the end. So just want to give you a heads up now that we are going to be able to participate and celebrate in that together as a church family. If you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 1. As Christians, I'm guessing that most of us do what we can do to make sure that Jesus is included and remembered as the real reason for the season at Christmas. Maybe for you that means sitting everyone down to read Luke 2 before opening presents. Maybe that looks like attending Christmas Eve service or heading to a homeless shelter in order to serve a meal. Perhaps going caroling or participating in angel tree or putting a manger scene in your front yard. Maybe it's making a cake and singing happy birthday Jesus. But whatever we do, beyond just staking our claim that this is really about Jesus and not about Santa, I wonder how much time do we actually spend considering the significance of what took place over 2,000 years ago. What made that baby born in Bethlehem so special? So unique that time itself is measured in relation to when he was born. So different that it still occupies a place on our calendars 2,000 years later. Even as Christians living in a commercialized society fighting to keep Christ at the center of Christmas. We need to be careful that we don't hallmark eyes the whole thing and miss how radical this event really is. Let's read together from John chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me 
ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at his word together this morning. Father, I thank you for this opportunity, this privilege to come and to behold you. I pray that you would make yourself known to us. This is something we cannot do on our own. We need your spirit to open our eyes. I pray that you don't let me to distract from you, from what you want us to see in your word. I pray that you help me to point to you. I pray that you help each of us to have eyes to see this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. The term incarnation is a word that we hear around this time of year. It isn't an explicitly Christian term. It can refer to any person who embodies in the flesh a deity, a spirit, or even a quality. So other religions have belief in incarnations or, in the case of some, in reincarnation where people or spirits come back in different forms in different lives. But when Christians use the word The term, the incarnation, it refers to the embodiment of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in human flesh as Jesus Christ. Now, here's where I particularly feel a challenge as we're gathered here this morning. This isn't news To us, those who have been in church for a while, those who have grown up in churches, in homes, and even to a diminishing degree in a culture that recognizes Jesus as God, we can be, I think, numb a bit to the mind-blowing truth, the reality that this truth really is. Because since Sunday school and bedtime Bible stories, we have heard that Jesus is God, which is good because he is. So we don't want to knock that fact at all. This is the reality that we're talking about this morning. But the fact that we are so familiar with it, I think it can become ordinary to us. And this is a reality that should be anything but ordinary or mundane to anyone the first century Jews, it would be hard to imagine words more shocking than we read in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because the idea that Yahweh, the great I am, could, would become flesh would have been considered blasphemy. In fact, we see this later in the book of John. We read in John 1033 was an interchange between religious leaders and Jesus where Jesus had declared that he and the Father are one and the Jews picked up stones to stone him, to put him to death. And so he asked them, for which of the signs of the Father that I have been working are you going to stone me? And they replied, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being A man, make yourself God. Because he declared that he and the Father are one. See, Jesus' claims to his own divinity during his earthly ministry were as clear as John's statements are in these verses. I'm not often... Aware or 
have at the top of my mind when we come to this season that the incarnation has been called the miracle of all miracles. And God's greatest wonder. I ask you, is that how you've been thinking about what he did as you've been going through this Advent season? Is that what you've been communicating to your kids as Christmas Day approaches? I'm not talking about the baby, the miracle of a baby being born to a virgin. Now that's marvelous. But I'm referring more to the creator committing himself to creatures of his own making forever. Irrevocably binding himself to that which was made from the dust of the earth and brought to life by the breath from his lips as he became one of us. This is one of those truths that I think we need to take a bit of time to put some wonder in our worship, to not move too quickly past these amazing realities. I'm not arguing for a church-wide four-week Advent season every year. I think it's a wonderful thing to do as families and at times as churches. Um, Some churches do this traditionally every year. It's been done actually for over 1,500 years throughout parts of the church. The season has been taken about a month long to just meditate on these realities. Trust me, Matt and I uh, can quickly develop Christmas fatigue each year as as this time comes around, trying to think of of how this year we're going to present truths that are very familiar to everyone again this year, stories and realities that are well-known and well-discussed. It's the same fatigue that many of us can feel as we walk into the department store at the, near the end of September and already decorations are growing up and, and just feeling that there's no, there's no limits anymore to the commercialization that's going on. But I do think it is worth recognizing why the church has prioritized this season through the centuries. Because throughout the centuries, it has had nothing to do with competition from St. Nick. There are truths and realities that the truth has said, we need to lay hold of this. We need to see this. It's the fact that the Creator united Himself with His creation. And that's a wonder that we need to ponder and reflect on. Here's the main point for us this morning. The Word became flesh forever to bring us life forevermore. Now this morning won't be a straight verse-by-verse exposition. Rather, it's going to be a reflection of several truths about the incarnation that we see in John chapter 1. The first is that the incarnation reveals God. This is, is... a building theme beginning in verse 1, beginning in the verse, first words of verse 1. The name that, that John repeatedly identifies the second person of the Trinity as is the Word. And any student of Genesis, which John purposely draws attention to with his opening line in the beginning, knows that the Word of God creates creation was spoken into existence by the powerful word of God. And creation itself was a revelation of who God was. The creative act and what God created and how he created it, it was meant to reveal things about who God is, what he is like. We can see, Paul says, different divine attributes by what has been made. He is putting on display signs and pointers to who he is. He is powerful. He delights in beauty. 
that he is purposeful and intentional in his creation and in his ways. He is immense beyond what we can see or fathom, down to the tiniest detail. He is intricate and caring about how his world functions. There are things that creation itself puts on display for us to see about who God is. And of course, the name Word does not stop there. It highlights that His very nature, the second person of the Trinity, His role is tied up with communicating and revealing. He is, as John goes on to say, light shining in the darkness, revealing who God is and what He is like. The opening sentences of John's gospel loudly declare that the fundamental essence of Jesus is that he is God communicating with us. He is the Word of God. He is God revealing himself to us, not for the sake of knowledge, but that we might become, John says, the children of of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us so our eyes could be opened and we might see His light and enjoy His life. He came dispensing grace and truth. Verse 18 says, He makes the Father known to us. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is Revealing God. That's why He was made flesh and dwelt among us. This passage is shouting that Jesus came in order to declare and display God. More than any sunset or starry night, we know what God is like because of Jesus. We would not know God as Father without the Son revealing Him as such. Jesus came and the son taught us about the spirit and promised to send him Jesus came to be the proclamation of God to humanity so what what does his incarnation proclaim to us specifically well he's declaring that he is committed to humanity forever. Our second point is that the incarnation eternally unites God and man. Again, we just mentioned how verse 1, in the beginning, mirrors Genesis 1.1. And then we see throughout this passage, statement after statement, declaring Christ's divinity, revealing that this is God, of God, that we are talking about. The Word. The Word being with God in the beginning, before there was anything. That the Word was God, just so we're absolutely clear. Verses 2 through 5, again, he, he says that he was with God, that all things were made through him, that in him was life and the light of men. In verse 10, we see again that the world was made through him. Verse 14, the word became flesh. The only son from the father. Verse 15, referring to John the Baptist's ministry in relation to Jesus. John the Baptist declaring that Jesus comes after me but ranks before me because he was before me. He has always been. Verse 18, he is the only God who is at the Father's side. John starts his gospel very differently from each of the other gospel writers. Each of them employ much more narrative of various scenes in Jesus' life and ministry, which John also uses. But John adds much more commentary as he gives us glimpses of Christ to make sure that we aren't missing the point. So instead of, of shepherds and a babe in a manger, John zooms out to give us the cosmic perspective of what is going on as Christ 
enters our world. There is meaning in the birth of this baby that isn't necessarily visible to the naked eye. So John seeks to help us to open our spiritual eyes to see exactly what is happening. Because John's subject is no ordinary creature of flesh. His subject has always been. His subject was with God in the beginning. And his subject is God. Everything that has been made was made through him. He is light and life. John couldn't be louder or clearer that he is writing about God himself who has become flesh. But there are other unconventional things God de- declares, John declares about God. Things that, again, to a first century Jew are going to sound, well, downright blasphemous. He talks about God becoming flesh, but he's also saying that this God who became flesh was with God. But he is God. Wait. God is one. That's the beginning of orthodoxy. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's going on here? And even if to add to our confusion, John himself proclaims in verse 18 that he is the only God who also happens to be revealing God. What's going on? John declares this God who is his subject is like God the Father, yet distinct from God the Father. Uh, Of course, we realize that John is pointing out different persons of the Trinity relating together here through the incarnation of the Son. But I want us to again step back a little bit and to understand that, that this idea of the Trinity as we now understand it was not a crystal clear doctrine for the first 300 years of the church. And let's be honest, it's still awfully difficult to wrap our heads around exactly how there can be three persons, one God. These statements from John provide immense insight, not only into the nature of Christ, but the distinct persons of the Trinity. And these were helpful words, helpful teachings as the church came together to understand this is who God is and what He is like and how He functions within Himself. In Matthew 1.20, an angel reassures Joseph that the child Mary was carrying was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Here in John, we see the Son as being from the Father, willingly becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So we see in the incarnation the authority of the Father, the love of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit all in action. Three distinct persons, yet one God. Co-eternal, each present in the beginning, all sharing the same Godness, the same essence or nature, yet functioning differently within their relationship with one another and with creation, yet equally God. No wonder it took 300 years to try and nail down what exactly Scripture is revealing to us. It still involves lots of mystery that's hard for us to explain Then we get to the second person of the Trinity as revealed in Jesus. And what we see is one person with two natures, both divine and human natures in Jesus Christ. So the Trinity is three persons, one essence, one God. In Christ, we have one person, yet two natures nature of God and the nature of man. And just so you know, that one took 450 years for the church to begin to get a hold on. 
God the Son did not temporarily come to earth just to put on flesh clothes that he abandoned after his resurrection. This is where it really gets, for me, mind-blowing. He forever united himself with mankind. Conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, God the Son took on the nature of a man. And the flesh, the body, the physical stuff of man in a permanent union. This is the creator of all things that we're talking about. The one who spoke into being all that there is. And in Mary's womb, he took on flesh to become one of us, one with us. Jesus Christ was both fully God, co-eternal with the Father, and of the same substance and nature as the Father and the Son, and fully man taking his flesh and human nature from the Virgin Mary and subject to all the bodily weaknesses to which human nature is universally subject, such as hunger and thirst, fatigue, temptation, pain. And he lived his life without sin. This uniting of two natures in one person did not take away from or diminish the Son's divinity, but added to it all that is involved in being human. Truly human. Not not all the stuff that we mess up. He didn't inherit our sin nature, but the created human nature that God made in His image to reflect Him, to represent Him to His creation. His human and divine natures are are not disconnected, but they form a personal unity. Jesus doesn't have a multiple personality disorder. He's one person. He functions as one clear-minded person. The joining of the two natures has not resulted in either one being diminished or in either one of them, or in them being mixed up or confused. Rather, it's understood that each identity, man and God, is preserved even as they form one person in Jesus Christ. Now again, you can see why it took some time to get a hold on what Scripture reveals to us in these things. There's complexities here that we will not understand in this life. We believe this is what Scripture clearly teaches and what the church has agreed upon as orthodox to the Christian faith for over 1,500 years. And I want us to see these things because these realities of the nature of Christ, the nature of the Trinity, they are not insignificant. Sometimes we can think that all that doctrine stuff was for a couple hundred years ago, and not something we need to really bother with now. But the reality is that these are the key differences between Christianity and Judaism and Islam. Between what is orthodox and accepted by the church for centuries of what God has revealed to us in His Word and what is heretical in cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism, because it's about who God is. It's the foundation of everything else. These are not disconnected doctrines, but these are the basis of the gospel itself. If we don't understand who He is, then it won't make sense how He relates to us and how we're to relate to him. 
the irrevocable nature of the incarnation on God's part, again, to me, it's just stunning. I mean, clearly from these verses, God the Son existed eternally, was the maker of all things before becoming flesh 2,000 years ago. In the incarnation, he bound himself to us. It was his point of no return. The light stepped out into darkness in order to open our blind eyes. The word became flesh. To borrow Adam's words, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. The same stuff that we are, he became. The one with all authority, to whom in heaven all worship is directed, took on the stuff of us, the dust of the earth, and walked and lived among us. God united himself to us in Christ. We need to try and hear this again for the first time that we might wonder at it. And to me, as I'm studying this, it, it has the effect of raising my perception of humanity. I'm aware of the mess. You see it every day. This broken world that we live in and because of that, it makes me marvel that God would unite himself to us. Of all of his creation, of all his creatures, us in our messed upness, he purposefully chose to eternally unite himself to us. He created us in his image which gives every human being ever conceived a dignity that has not been given to the beasts of the field or the birds of the air or the fish of the sea or any other living thing. Even the angels and heavenly creatures surrounding his throne right now Though they are with him, they were not made in his image like you and I are. But even being made in God's image didn't obligate him to redeem us when we rebelled against him in Eden or have each and every one of us gone our own way ever since. He wasn't obligated. And the sad reality is, millions made in God's image will endure and the unending torment in hell, along with the devil and his angels, for their refusal to humble themselves before God in this life. He wasn't obligated to redeem us all. He wasn't obligated to redeem any of us. God was not required to make a permanent commitment to us. He could have ended image bearers in the garden. He could have ended image bearers when he was grieved that he had made us and sent the flood. Instead of saying, it's not worth it, he doubled down at the incarnation. Eternally uniting himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Because God wasn't done with flesh once he died at Calvary. He rose in the flesh from the grave. His disciples put their fingers in the holes in his hands and pierced side. 
He ate with them and bodily ascended from their presence to the right hand of the Father. God the Son is still and will forevermore be in the flesh. The same flesh that he became when he became one of us. Now, glorified flesh as encountered by the Apostle John in Revelation. But he has not abandoned his human nature or flesh once his task here was completed. He is forevermore one with us, just as he has forever been one with the Father. What? Joy to the world indeed. Forever one with us. Just as he forever has been one with the Father. Let this sink in. You realize this means that there is one of us right now seated at the right hand of the Father. our firstborn brother who has gone to prepare a place for us and intercedes for us continually, our advocate, which makes heaven not, not a foreign place where we'll feel uncomfortable and out of our element, but our true home prepared for us by one of us. The only one who knows what it is like for us to be who we were created to be. None of us actually even knows what that's like yet. He does, and he is the one that is preparing our place for us. In this life, we have longings we can't explain, disappointments and frustrations at the way things are, because we know this isn't the way they were meant to be, because we aren't who we were meant to be. But we will be. We will be made like him and will enjoy forever the place he has made for us because it is the place we will be with him. And we can cry out to him now. As we long for what is yet to come, we can cry out to him for mercy and strength now because he knows our frame. He's existed in it. It's still part of him. He's able to sympathize with our weakness. He's able to help us to stand. The third point is that the incarnation is the only way to our redemption. In him was the life, the light of men, Verse 12, that those who receive him might believe in his name have the right to become children of God. The author of Hebrews writes that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Guys have gotten up to uh, get stuff for communion. You can go ahead and begin to distribute that. As I mentioned, we're going to celebrate that in just a moment together. Something different than how we usually do things, but trust will be meaningful. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to have received him, to have believed in his name, to participate in remembering in his death what he has done to redeem us. If, if you're not a believer in his name, we just ask that you watch and observe as we continue. Puritan Stephen Charnock remarked about the juxtaposition in the incarnation. Christ had both that nature which had offended our nature, the offending nature, and that nature which was offended in one person. We have this divine nature that had been offended and the offending nature. 
that that you and I have. The reason God took on flesh was for us. This wasn't a joyride to see how his design handled. I want to feel it personally. This wasn't to fulfill some curiosity about how the other half lived. The reason the Trinity planned in eternity and acted in the fullness of time was so that we would have a representative, a mediator, a way to life. It's because for our salvation, his humanity is as important as his divinity. You see, only a man could pay the penalty for man's sin, for our sin. An angel didn't meet the requirements. A bull or a goat didn't meet the requirements. They were meant to be placeholders. They were meant to be pointers, reminders that the penalty for sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It had to be one of us, though, to bear the ultimate penalty. These animals, they were just reminders of what needed to be done, of the price that we owed. But only God could actually take on that full penalty of our sins. See, for each one of us, if we bear the penalty, we're just taking our own. What we've rightly deserved, what we have earned because of our sin, we receive that penalty and that alone. Only God could take the sin of the world. It had to be Jesus, God and man in one person take the sin of the world and actually be able to bear it and destroy it forever. Only Jesus Christ, the God-man, could bring us to God. There was no other way. There is no other way. God became man so that we could become what He created us to be. Like Him. Image bearers that reflect His love, His sacrifice, His forgiveness. That give glory to God. Augustine wrote, Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. He became flesh so that his body could be broken for you and for me. This is what we remember as we eat. Let's eat together. The God who came to be broken. The author of life was born into this world in order that the life-giving blood he himself designed and brought into existence would be shed from his own flesh in order to give life, to deliver it to you and to me. 
Let's remember and drink together. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Last thing we want to look at this morning is that the incarnation brings glory to God in the highest. John declares that through his incarnation we have seen God's glory. Again, it's because the incarnation reveals who God is, what he is like, what he values, and shows to us as important. Paul actually helps us out here and gives us specific insight regarding exactly what it is about the incarnation that is deemed worthy of honor and worship and glory. And he tells us to imitate it. In Philippians 2, we read, beginning in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself. Creator. Becoming one with creation in the incarnation. He humbled himself through his obedience. He humbled himself through his death. Therefore, he is worthy of glory and honor and praise. As he, as Paul commands us to have the same mind, we are not told to imitate some lower creature in order to live out humility. We're not told to go to the worm and see how it grovels in the dirt. No, the example of humility we are commanded to imitate is that of our glorious God. The one whose name will be exalted above every name. He is our example of humility. The Christian model of humility begins by imitating the incarnation of the Son of God. He was and had everything but for the sake of others. Specifically for the sake of us, he laid aside everything to grovel in the dirt, but to be a servant, to benefit us, even to the point of his own death on the cross. Our culture's model of glory is to be better at something than everyone else, to win the prize, to get the last word or the last laugh, to get the most likes, the most followers, or the most money. Fulfill some amazing master plan. God could have chosen anything as the way He wanted us to reflect Him. But none of those things are it. Instead, as children of God, 
children of God who have everything because of our union with Him. Who are seated in the heavenly places. One day we'll join Him unfettered forever. He calls us to lay aside our rights, our preferences, our status, to use our time and talents, our finances and possessions for the service and benefit of others, to reflect Him in this. Whether that's someone in our family, in our workplace, in our community, in our care group, in another nation halfway around the globe, He calls us to be what others need us to be. This is the way of humility. This is the way of the servant. The way of disciples. The way we are called to reflect the incarnate Son and to bring Him glory. The incarnation means we worship Him because He humbled Himself. That we worship Him by humbling ourselves. We'll worship Him forever because He's forever united Himself with us. The Word became flesh forever to bring us life forevermore. Let's pray together. Lord, how, how marvelous You are. That you would show your love and your kindness. To design a plan where you would leave. You would set aside your glory. To unite yourself to us. That we might become the children of God. Lord, how amazing you are. What a miracle this is that Creator make Himself one with creation to redeem us. Lord, we are not worthy, but you are worthy and will be proclaimed forever as worthy because of what you have done. How merciful, how kind, how generous, how loving you are. Lord, I pray that for each of us this Christmas season, you would help us to be amazed. That you would help us to wonder at your goodness, at your kindness, at your love that you have come for us. Let's stand together and sing.